Here we go, October 16, 2011, lecture discussion, uh, and I've been calling these intermissions, and this is intermission review eight. And again, uh, I'm, I'm under the weather, I've lost my voice, and it may disappear at any time, and if it does, that's probably a benefit, and that's God protecting me and you. So we'll see how it goes, and hopefully we'll make it through it. Well, uh, let's see, when we last left off, we were attempting to harmonize all the different elements of the events of Numbers 20, uh, which for those um, who might have missed the October 9th lecture or last Sunday's lecture, that is where Moses and Aaron conspire. And I'm going to put conspire in quotations because I don't necessarily agree that that is an accurate word to describe it, though that is most often described that way. But that is where it seems, at least, Moses and Aaron conspired to disobey God's instructions to speak to the rock. Uh, and instead, Moses utters this very enigmatic um, phrase, Hear now, you rebels. So instead of speaking to the rock, he says this, Hear now, you rebels. Must we bring water? For you, out of this rock. I want you to keep in mind, Moses is saying this. How smart is Moses? How much does Moses know? Moses has got 80 days face to face, doesn't he? He's got a red phone, if anyone ever had a red phone. This is one of the most intelligent, wise men that has ever lived. You can compare him to Solomon. He would, I think, be beneath Adam. But his access to God is almost unparalleled in Scripture. And he says this, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock. And I intentionally broke that statement into parts so, that, so as to illustrate the complete Absolute counter it is to every description that God presents of Moses. God declares Moses as humble, very humble, 12, uh, 3 of Numbers. Moses is faithful. He is described by God as faithful. That is an extraordinary thing. Don't discount that. Moses is called by God his servant Moses. Moses is a willing substitute for Israel. He's willing to be the one blotted out so that Israel would survive. That's Moses. Moses is... And by the way, that's a complex picture of Genesis 15, isn't it? And that's Exodus 32:32. for those who want to look it up. That's also Matthew 26:39. Moses wanting to be blotted out is Matthew 26:39, which is where Christ has the cup. It is a, a type of that. Moses is an intercessor, a mediator. And Moses sees God face to face, not in visions, but face to face. Christ, of course, is the face of God, right? So uh, you see this tremendous typology that is Moses in Scripture, this tremendous honoring of Moses. And all of a sudden now we have Moses doing something that is, as I said, enigmatic at best. He utters a phrase that doesn't seem to be representative of who he is. And all of those descriptions that I just gave to you, and there's many others, Deuteronomy 18.15 just comes to mind. He's the prophet. They clearly don't seem to explain this. Here now, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock? 
Moses is always doing something in Scripture. What is he always doing? Almost every time there's some kind of issue, what does Moses do? Aaron as well. What do they do? They go into the tabernacle and they do what? They fall down on their face. It's what they do. That's what kind of men they are. Especially Moses. So this Numbers 20.10 has to be explained. It's in contrast. And it is in contrast. It stands out. It is a departure. Uh, We just need to find out why. What's the reason for the departure? It's a contrast departure from Moses' consistent behavior. Aaron, on the other hand, let's take him for a second. What's he got? Aaron seems to be much more difficult to, to get to. He has the golden calf incident. Have to explain why he responds the way he does there. What's it seem likely to most people? If I had a hundred sermons given to me on Moses and, I'm sorry, Aaron and the golden calf incident, what would they all say? They would say, Aaron is a willing participant in the golden calf event, wouldn't they? He collects the gold, he participates in it. He wants to do it. And I don't think you can defend that position. And we'll have to get to that. On the other hand, we also have his collusion with Miriam. Exodus uh, 32, the golden uh, calf, and Numbers 12 is his collusion with Miriam, where they decide that uh, they're as equal to Moses, and they are told that is not the case. So anyway, we have to deal with uh, Aaron. He's slightly different, but don't, uh, don't rush to some judgment on him. He is far more complicated than you might imagine. So the challenge of Numbers 20, <coughs> excuse me, boy, oh boy, is to determine what exactly was the motive for that statement and that act. What's the plan that they had of Moses and Aaron? What exactly did they expect would be the response of God to Moses killing the rock twice, actually smoting the rock? The King James has this correctly. It says that Moses smotes or Moses kills the rock. What exactly did they expect would be the response of God to killing this rock twice more? Remember, we have Exodus 17 where the rock was killed the first time. So out of the death of the rock comes living water. He's told to speak to the rock the second time. He doesn't speak to the rock. Instead, he kills the rock twice more. Is he dumb? No, you can't defend that position. What's his motive then? What's his plan? Obviously, it's both of them in it together. Not just Moses, Aaron and Moses. What did they think would be the response of God to that? What did they think would be the response of the congregation of Israel to the response of God? Because they had to think it through. I believe they thought it through very carefully. As you know, I always have the opinion that these men, uh, whether it be Adam or Moses, um, are careful thinkers. They're not impetuous. They're not impulsive. They have too much access for that. As some of you are aware, I believe that Moses, um, and I should point out, there's a lot of views here. There's a lot of disagreement. And it is a lot more complicated than maybe I'll be able to present it. But as most of you know, I believe that Moses and Aaron expected the no response. Or they expected the a, a, so the Nadab Abihu response. So I think they had either the no response from God, which would be no response. God doesn't do anything. 
Or they would get the Nadab Abihu response, which is why I keep bringing them up. Put that best I can. So they would either get the no response or the Nadab Abihu response. And so the correct question really would be, what would Israel's response be to the no response? Or if you want, you could call the no response the no water response. Does this make sense to anybody? Okay. If it doesn't make any sense to you, then you're normal. If it does make sense to you, remember the church motto here and say it all together now. Were you weird before you came to Cliffside? Or did Cliffside make you weird? So if you're following that, then you're doing good. Or not. But also keep in mind, God says explicitly and definitively that Moses and Aaron did not believe and rebelled against his word. And thus, the most obvious of the obvious questions. What did they not believe? Now, before I go on with that, let me explain some of the other views. There's a lot of them here. There is the full knowledge view. I won't write that on the page, which means that Moses and Aaron had complete understanding of what God was doing, why God said what he said, and were willing participants. It's called the full knowledge view. There is the partial knowledge or the combination view. That fits more along the lines of where I will go. And they, they equate what happened at Numbers 20 to exactly what happened with Abraham at Sodom and Gomorrah. When, when Abraham is appearing to argue with God and to change God's mind. And immediately, if you have a position that Abraham is arguing with God and appearing to change God's mind, then where are you theologically? Yeah, you're in deep mud and you're wrong. Because God is immutable, cannot change his mind, he's omniscient, he's outside of time. So that is what's called a dramatic theodicy in Scripture. This discussion between Abraham and God, at, uh, that is a lesson for us. That is to reveal to us what God is, what's going on inside of the triunity or the triune nature of God. <coughs> How does he explain himself to us? He uses people to do that. And in that case, he used Abraham. And he illustrated the Genesis 15 issue, for those of you who are familiar with that. Okay, so God says explicitly, definitively, without stuttering, Moses and Aaron did not believe. Moses and Aaron rebelled against his word, thus the most obvious of the obvious questions. What is it that they did not believe? What was their purpose in this disobedience? And again, I'm going to put it in quotations so that you don't take the position automatically that it is disobedience. You leave room to to, uh, look at the other views here. What is their purpose in disobeying or rebelling against God's instruction to speak to the rock? And that raises perhaps the key question of the entire matter. Matter. Why did Moses strike the rock? And that's when I say strike, that's not correct. Why did he kill the rock twice more? First time he kills the rock, you see the beautiful picture of Christ. I'll get to that in a a minute. Second time he kills the rock twice, 40 years later. Why did he hit it twice? Why not three times? Why not Seven, ten, twelve. Pick an ordinal number. Why twice? Does he know what he's doing? I take the position he does. So why twice? 
It isn't arbitrary. It isn't impulsive. It is thought through. It is not accidental. And then, of course, how does this all fit with Deuteronomy 137? I put this on last week as well. 326. And then 4. Let me get this correct for you so that I... uh, Oh, it's 421, but it goes pretty much through the end of the chapter. How does it fit there? Along with uh, what else does ha- what else do we have to get in here? What subject are we in? This is an intermission because somebody asked me to explain something. What did they ask me to explain? That's right, the Hebrew twelve-step betrothal ceremony. So I have twelve steps to have in here. How does it fit with Deuteronomy? How does it fit with the twelve-step Jewish betrothal wedding ceremony? And I can't leave the Apostle Peter out of this. He's, he comes right in the middle of it. And then again, I've got the surrounded theme of Psalm 118.26. And I have the whole dramatic theodicy aspect to deal with. And again, sometimes I do things just for the people on the Internet. That's one of them. That's an example of me doing it right there. Because I, I want to make sure I get all the pieces out to people. There are some who will never... Look at the pieces, and that's perfectly fine. It's just okay. I, I, I know. There are others who will find every single piece and trace it down and spend years on it. And I want to fulfill my responsibility to give the pieces that I know about at least. Okay, probably ought to reread Numbers 20. It's in your bulletin, 2 through 13. And get everybody back up <coughs> on the bus as best we can. Whenever I have something this difficult, uh, and listen, it's all difficult. It's all complex. There are layers and layers and layers to all of Scripture. That's how you can tell it's Scripture. But when it, I try to read it as much as I can so that everybody begins to find it, get it in their head. So here we go. We'll start at verse 2. Numbers 20, verse 2. Now, there was no water for the congregation. Second time in 40 years, there's no water. That should leap off the page, smack you upside the head, and you have to ask immediately, why is there no water? What is God doing? Does God know where the water is? He could easily send them to it, but he makes sure there's no water. And so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. They've gone 40 years. They have water all but one time. And that time we had the killing the rock incident of Exodus 17. Now we go almost to the end of 40 years. They didn't get water for one day. And what are they doing? Not just whining. They're threatening to kill Moses and Aaron. Is that a type of Christ? You'll find that it is. So they gathered together against Moses and Aaron, and the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died. We need to know immediately which brethren are they talking about. Most have the position that's the core rebellion. We'll get to that when we do the list. If only, yes, we're doing a list today. If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. By the way, they're thirsty. 
This is a dry desert where you die of thirst in the heat. What's that remind you of? What's that a description of? It's not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. So Moses and Aaron, listen to that, okay? They got the full force of what was about to happen. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, that's the tent of Moses, and fell on their faces, and the Shekinah glory of the Lord appeared to them. So that is the, if you wish, that's the light or the ball of fire, that is what's inside the holy of holies, and it appears to them. They are on their faces. What kind of men are they? Are they arrogant men? Are they disobedient men? Self-aggrandizing men? Are they stupid men? Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod. You and your brother, Aaron, gather the congregation together. Why is he telling him this? They came to God, fell on their faces, and he's giving them what? Instructions. Do this. Bang, 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 bang. Do these things. Take the rod. What's the obvious question? Yeah, why? You and your brother, Aaron, gather the congregation together. Speak to the rock. What rock? It's the first mention we got of a rock, isn't it? Yes, it was. This is Exodus 17. It is absolutely Christ. But which rock is he talking about? Is this the same place? It's called the same thing. But is it the same place? We're talking 40 years difference between this rock and the rock that Weldon brings up in Exodus 17. Moses and Aaron knew exactly what rock. How did they know? Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock again. Right? Second time. Doesn't say again, but you know that it is. And give drink to the congregation and their animals. How many of them are there? Millions of them. A couple of million. A lot of people. This is the city of Seattle. It's a vast amount of people wandering around in the wilderness with a lot of animals. By the way, how are their shoes doing? Shoes are good. How's their clothes doing? Very good. A lot better than Carhartt. You have to understand why that's the case. So, Moses took, that was for free, I just threw it in to keep you, keep you reminded of it. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together, how are we doing so far, before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Must we? Who's the we in that sentence? Bring water for you out of this rock. 
Then Moses lifted his hand and struck, smote the rock. And smote the rock twice with his rod. Twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. And something was averted. What was averted? Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me. Again, what's the obvious question? What is it they didn't believe? To hallow me. In other words, to demonstrate my holiness. In the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This was the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. So how was it that he was hallowed? You'll find out if, as you go on over into Numbers 20, 25. And 24, I'm sorry, 24 and 25, that that is where Aaron is preparing for his death. And God calls this a rebellion of Aaron and Moses. Okay, now that should reset the situation that we find ourselves in. Hopefully everybody now is caught up and on board. And so as often is the case when we come across passages in the Old Testament, especially uh, those that are filled with detail, as is Numbers 20, we benefit by making a list, which I will do. Much to the, I had one family used to come here a long time ago, and, and uh, she, she the, the the wife couldn't come up with a, didn't want to say their name, but uh, they she would come up after the service almost every week and tell me how bad I did, and how she wasn't paying money to see me draw a list every week. And I said, well, you're not paying money. Thanks for your support. So I understand that making lists bothers people, but it does help, believe it or not, and I believe there's great benefit from it. It's, it's an attempt to see where things should be assigned. I'm going to give you a list, and you should assign them to places. You should say, that goes here, and this goes here. And, of course, what do we do first? We got a list. What's the first thing we do? What's the first thing we assign those things on the list to? What's the plan? We've got to figure out this very complicated chapter or passage here. What do we do? Well, the first thing we do is our John 5.39. What's that? We've got a John 5.39 in this passage. What is that? Yeah, that's find Christ. Find that which testifies of Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of the Old Testament. I can't say that enough. Any interpretation you have of Numbers 20 or anything in the Old Testament, any conclusion that you draw that neglects or omits the person of Christ is immediately in the ditch. If you don't do your John 5.39 and find Christ when you're in the Old Testament, then you are in the ditch. To finish well, in order to get this correct, to finish it well, we have to start well. And we start well by, uh, that's defined. Starting well is defined by finding Jesus Christ in the passage. You look for those who are types of him and that which is a symbol of him. As Weldon points out, the rock is clearly a symbol of Christ. The water is a symbol of the, he says, listen, I am living water. I'm life. The water is the everlasting life that comes out of the rock. They all drank abundantly. So did the animals, by the way. Don't get me started on that. Okay, I'll write the list. You figure out where the elements go. Okay, we start right off the bat with what? No water. 
No water. As I said, that's extraordinary because this is only the second time there hasn't been any water. Second time in 40 years. And then the kids immediately, they're out of water for a day. I don't know exactly how long, but not long. And they've had a miraculous journey. They've had manna. They've, their clothes don't rot. They get water out of a rock before. Now we have no water and, and, and the second time, and the congregation gathers. Okay? It gathers. This is the surround theme again. And I'm abbreviating these things. They're surrounding Aaron and Moses. And that isn't good. They're not surrounding. And they tell them all of these things. They're surrounding them. It is a threatening event. They are threatening these two men. What are they going to do if they don't get water? Apply that, by the way, to the next place where the high priest and the prophet are is surrounded by the congregation of Israel. Did he, by the way, mention water there? Yes, he did. Okay, see. Then they go into this, when our brethren died. And I asked, when did that happen? Which brethren? And most will give the position that that is the Korah rebellion, which was an attempt to replace Moses and Aaron as in authority as well. Okay? When our brethren died in this wilderness, whenever you see the word wilderness, I hope immediately you go to the goat for Azazel. Who is Azazel? Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, whichever you want to say. I don't know how to pronounce very many things that are in the Hebrew. I was told by uh, Mr. Fruchtenbaum to quit trying. And I tell that story all the time. When he came here, he said to me, uh, don't, don't try to talk to Jewish people. You're not good at it. Here's my phone number. Have them call me. And he was serious. You're not equipped. You go ahead and stay preaching to Gentiles. You do that okay. You leave the Jews to the professionals. And by, and listen, I have great respect for that advice. I know to witness to, to argue with, and we have a gentleman, Benjamin, that is sending us, he, I, I don't want to cause him any problems, but he is uh, dealing with a young lady that is Jewish, and he's doing a wonderful job with her. It is uh, not something that the, uh, the ill-equipped should do. We don't know what we don't know a lot. Okay, enough of that. This wilderness. When you see the word wilderness, you should think of desert. You should think of that second goat that goes into the wilderness for Azazel, who is Satan. Every time I see wilderness, I think that second goat. It's a habit of mine. I want you to try to have it as well. Die here. We're going to die here, they say. Okay? You made us. You made us come out of Egypt. You forced us out of there. Did God, by the way, force them out of Egypt? Yeah, kind of. He, he made it so Egypt threw them out, didn't he? Egypt sure felt, felt like they were forced out of there. Anyway, Egypt. Whenever you see Egypt in Scripture, you have to know what Egypt is a symbol of. What is Egypt a symbol of? Is it a good symbol? No, it's not. Being in Egypt is being in sin. It's being in condemnation. God pulls them out of condemnation. 
They want to go back to condemnation or the symbol of it. And they call where they're at, the wilderness, an evil place. Okay? This evil place. It's not a place of figs. In other words, they say God has lied to us. He didn't bring us to this promised land. He brought us to an evil place. And it's not a place of figs and pomegranates. And there is no water here. I got a, I got a big list, so I got to keep, keep it all here. There's no water to drink. Not any water. And I have really good handwriting, except when I do things like this. And Moses and Aaron, they went from this meeting, from this meeting, they went to the tabernacle and they fell on their faces. Why did they fall on their faces? What made them fall on their faces? What does fall on their faces mean here? Why not just walk in and say, hey, we got a problem? Did they think they had an easy thing going here? I do agree absolutely that Nadab and Abai who play a part in this, especially when Nadab and Abihu, uh, I'm sorry, when they say here now, they speak to the rock instead of doing what God said. I think that relationship clearly exists. But I'm going to tell you that they went and fell on their faces because they knew that this was a serious problem. They knew that Israel was doing something that was profoundly wicked. And they were very much worried about the nation of Israel. Okay, because that's what they did. And then the Shekinah glory is there. That is the glory of God, right? Did I spell it right? I hope I did. I did. And they're told to do something now, right? Here's the solution. Take the rod. What is the rod a symbol of? Who is the rod a symbol of? Two separate questions. You and your brother. So it's got to be you, and it's got to be Aaron. Moses is the prophet, Aaron is the high priest. What are those? Those are two of the three offices of Christ. He comes as prophet, he, comes, he goes as high priest, which is where he is now, he returns as king. They have two of the three titles. So together they are the high priest and the prophet, or the prophet and the high priest. You and your brother. And then you gather the congregation and you speak to the rock. So gather, speak to the rock. Can't get any clearer than that, can you? Before their eyes. Make sure they see it. Who is they? You gotta take the rod, you and your brother, gather them together, speak to the rock, make sure they see it. The nation of Israel. And when you do all of that, what's gonna happen? It, the rock, will yield water.
Okay, so there's, there's the plan, right? Do you see the order there? Take the rod, you and your brother. Gather the congregation. Speak to the rock before their eyes. It will yield water. Those are the elements. Now, did Moses and Aaron do step one? Did they take the rod? So far, so good. Both of them go. Step two, so far, so good. Did they gather everybody? Did they speak to the rock? No, they didn't. What did they do instead? Instead, they spoke to who? They didn't speak. They spoke to the assembly. And then they killed the rock twice. And I want you to note the difference there. They did not speak to the rock who is Christ. Can't say that enough. The spiritual rock, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5. Got to have that peace. But instead, Moses speaks to the congregation. So the people are substituted for Christ, aren't they? Instead of speaking to Christ to have water, they speak to the congregation. And then they kill the rock twice. How's that going to work? Should that have yielded any water? Here's the thing you do. You get the rod, you and your brother, you gather, you speak, you get in front of their eyes, the rock's going to yield water if you do that. They, they, they got off track right here, didn't they? And they blew up. Boom. But what happened? The rock still, still yielded water. And let me say this again. Obviously, this is not a mistake by Moses and Aaron. This is not a mistake or an error, as some of your Bible's mind has. This is a premeditated, intentional act. And it is a complete departure from Moses' previous behavior, or so it seems. Remember, this is the man who sought to be blotted out for this nation. Blot me out. Save them. That's what he said. Save Israel. Get rid of me. What's he saying there, by the way? How good a leader does he think he is? Remember, God calls him very, very humble. Now, we have revealed to us what Moses said to Israel. I've read it to you. I won't read it again. But you know it's the here now, right? You rebels. And it is not revealed what Moses was to say to the rock that was Christ. So the obvious question becomes, can I figure out, can you figure out, can we figure it out, what it was that Moses was supposed to say to the rock? Can we extrapolate backwards? I believe we can. I think we can figure out what he was supposed to say to the rock to make it yield water. I have the rest of Scripture to help me with that. And as you know, often I urge you guys to approach Scripture as if you were a detective uh, coming uh, to an after-the-fact crime scene and gathering up evidence, looking for what there is, looking for what is there. Sorry, I said that bad. But I also want you to look for what else. I want you to look for what's missing. That's almost always as important. 
What Moses was to speak to the rock, that's missing. It's not in the text. And that would seem to be critical information. Keep in mind, the results of this event are is the death of Aaron and the death of Moses on mountains at the hand of God. Now, before I continue with the list, and there's more to go, I have to interject that Moses and Aaron have something that we don't always think about, but they thought about all the time because they had God himself in the Holy of Holies. They had the Shekinah glory there. They could see it at night. They could go in there, fall on their faces at any time, right? They had a complete understanding of the omniscience of God, his omnipresence. They knew that he knew all things. He knew everything. They knew who he was. They got to speak to him. And yet they nonetheless deviate from their assignment, something that they had to discuss. How do you have a private discussion without God knowing about it? You don't ever. And if you think you do, you are mindlessly fooling yourselves. God knows every discussion. You have no secrets. And these two knew that as well as anybody that has ever lived. And they decide at some point in all of this that uh, they're going to change this. They're not going to speak to the rock. That they are going to speak to the congregation. And they are going to strike the rock twice. And the proof of that is is in the subsequent deaths of Moses and Aaron. God's description, rebelled, uh, did not believe. And one more thing you need to consider before we can move on with our list. Step one is take the rod, isn't it? Take the rod. What's the question there? Why? Sure. If I'm going to speak to the rock, what do I need the rod for? If I'm not supposed to strike the rock or smote the rock, kill the rock, Why do I even take the rod? If Moses was only to speak to the rock, what's the purpose of the rod? And the rod was prominent in Exodus 17. It kills the rock there. That's very important in Exodus 17. But it doesn't seem to be necessary here. But yet it is necessary. It becomes prominent also here at Numbers 20. But it doesn't have the same role that it did at Exodus 17. It kills the rock twice. That happens to happen here. But that does not seem to be its intended purpose. That is the Moses rebellion. The Moses modification. The original meaning of the rod, what its purpose of, is also missing. Just like what he said to the what he was supposed to say to the rock is also missing. We've got to figure that out as well. Uh, can we do that? Yes, we can. Now, Q, I'm going to stop right there. I'll put the rest of it up next week because I've got to get through. Q would be Moses' speech. Why did he say this? Here's a guy that thought this through really carefully, and this is what he has to say. Hear now, you rebels. What are they rebelling against? They're rebelling against something. What are they rebelling against? What do they want changed? They don't want to go where God says to go, and they don't want to be led by God, by who God said should lead them. What do they want to do instead? Go back to Egypt with a different leader. What's Egypt a symbol of? Condemnation and sin. Hear now, you rebels. 
must we bring water for you out of this rock? Did Moses think that he and Aaron had any power to bring water out of that rock? No. Why would he say that? And then R, he lifted his hand and he struck the rock twice with the rod. And water came out abundantly. That's S. Water came out abundantly. R lifted his hand, struck the rock twice with his rod, with the rod. T, because you did not believe me, God says, because you did not believe me. What exactly? And that's a stop for a moment wow place. Believing is very important in scripture. It's a very important word. Moses and Aaron did not believe God and they rebelled. Numbers 20 through 24, 2024. Now think about that a second. They did not believe. God said, you did not believe me, and you rebelled. They did not believe, and they went into rebellion. And as a result, what happens to both of them? They die on a mountain at the hand of God. Stripped of their garments. And what is that? What is the consequences of not believing and going into rebellion? If I said, that person there does not believe God and is in rebellion and as a consequence will die at the hand of God. What am I talking about? Just how complicated is this little dramatic theodicy here in Numbers 20? And that's a hint, by the way. It is very, very complicated. And putting it all together is is not for the uh, weak of heart or the shallow, shallow student, what exactly did the most humble, faithful servant, the fall-on-his-face guy, none like Moses guy, what exactly did he not believe, him and Aaron? Not believe. That doesn't make sense. I got, I got Moses here. To say of Moses, you didn't believe something, that's Profound. We have to figure that out. And it, like I said, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem to. It does, but it doesn't seem to at first. Which means there's great treasure buried here once you find it. You. Item you. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. And yes, I, I know I went out of order there. Because he said you did not believe. But he spoke to them. What's the obvious question? Who heard it? Who's there? Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. What is it that they didn't believe and why didn't they believe it? Marie has a wonderful question there. But the Lord speaks to them and tells them they didn't believe him and that they, and that ultimately they were in rebellion. And they're both dying. And Aaron is stripped of his garments. It almost looks like, ever remember the old Chuck Connors? Uh, okay, maybe nobody remembers Chuck Connors. But he did a show, a western back in the, Oh, golly, early 60s, called Branded, where the opening of the show, TV show, all the, all the people under, never mind, I won't admit how old I am, but they, he was an army officer, supposedly was a coward in battle, and of course it wasn't true, but he had to go through his life branded, and his buttons were stripped off, you remember that? And they busted his sword, and he had this little short sword the rest of his TV show. Uh, I remember Branded, I don't know why. It's not here. I didn't intend to say it. 
I just did it because I have no reason. But my point, my point in all of that is, is that uh, that's Aaron. He is made an example of in front of the whole nation of Israel. Now, why did God do that? And he spoke to both of them and said, you didn't believe me and you can't now take this assembly into the promised land ultimately because of that. That's backed up as we get into Deuteronomy as well. So, did the whole of the congregation hear that? I think they did. I think it's obvious that they did. But if you say yes then there are great implications to to saying yes. Then you have to evaluate everything, everything, heretofore within the context of the purpose of God, saying this to Moses and Aaron so that the congregation would hear it. In other words, everything that comes before that and everything that comes after are all now in the context of what he said to them. Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. In other words, the whole point of all of Numbers 20 is so God could say those words in front of those people so that they could hear it. Because you did not believe me. The whole nation heard him say that to these two men who were his ordained leaders. In other words, Numbers 20.12 is the linchpin. It's the key. All things happen in order for that to be said by God for the sake of the children. For the sake of the children. Let me repeat that. In other words, you. this is the full knowledge view that I'm giving you now. This is all done on purpose, for one reason and one reason only, for the sake of the children. Again, why did Moses and Aaron fall on their faces? What were they thinking? What were they feeling? What did they believe was going to happen? I'm going to give you some final pieces here. Uh, we're going to run to Deuteronomy one we We'll read that. And there's a key phrase here. Very important. Deuteronomy one thirty seven. Moses is saying this. The Lord also, the Lord was, sorry, the Lord was also angry with me for your sakes. For your sakes. The Lord was angry with me for your sakes. Saying, even you shall not go in there. Even you shall not go in there. That's the promised land. 3.26 But the Lord was angry with me on your account. And would not listen to me. So the Lord said to me, enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. That's where Peter comes in, by the way. You'll get to that next week if you don't get to that before. Deuteronomy 4, 21-24. 
Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes and swore that I would not cross over the Jordan and that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Also in all of that, you will see this pleading. He will say, Moses said, I pleaded with God to change his mind. And that's why God says enough of that. How much does Moses know? How much is he aware? Let me read this last. This is number Z, by the way. I'll get, I'll redo the list next week. The last element is a jealous God. God describing himself as a jealous God. And again, that tells you that that is your betrothal pattern. Okay. A lot of them missing, but just take the ones that are here. There it is. It's all laid out now. All you gotta do is what? It's easy now. It's simple. All the hard work's done. That's why I get the huge, vast amounts of money that I get. I'm glad you laughed. There's your piece of pie, easy as cake. All you gotta do. It's all downhill. You ask the two questions. What's the first question? There's your list. What's the first question? Where's Christ? Where is he? Okay, he's obviously the rock. There he is. Is he the rod? There he is. Huh? Shekinah glory. There he is again. Moses in there. Mm-hmm. He's the water. By the way, they're in the desert. This is a very important question to ask. Why are they in the desert? Why is there desert? What causes the desert to exist? What caused the flood? What caused the curse? Who, who, yeah, why, when he, when they say there's no water here in the wilderness, there is water in the wilderness. What's the obvious question? Where is the water? It's in the rock. How do I get the water out of the rock? I kill it. Then I speak to it. First advent, second advent, right? First coming, second coming of Christ. That's how I get the water out of the rock. But why do I have a rock in the wilderness? Why should I, why should there be any water? What made the wilderness wilderness? Did God make the wilderness wilderness? Did God make it desert? Did God cause it to be an evil place? Did God cause it to die? No. So, find Christ on the list. And then, what on the list is the Hebrew betrothal ceremony? Where is the Hebrew betrothal ceremony? Because it's there, baby. All of this is the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. Wilderness die, you made us Egypt evil. Brethren died. That's the Hebrew betrothal ceremony right there. So is this. Went. So was that. So here we go. Finish it with this. What did Moses know? Did he know everything or was it some kind of combination? 
Did he follow the exact plan? Or did he modify the plan? Did God know he was going to modify the plan? Yes. He sure did. Did Moses know that God knew that he was going to modify the plan? What's the next question that comes when you start going down this road? Did Moses know that God knew that he was going to modify the plan and that God wanted him to modify the plan? That's where you go with the full knowledge view versus a combination view. Okay? In other words, was he in the role or was he in rebellion? Did he actually rebel? Or was did he really rebel? And if he did rebel, why did he rebel? Which is what Marie asked. If he tried to rebel on purpose, why did he do it? I think he did it because of the same reason he fell on his face. He's worried about the nation of Israel. What's he thinking? If I stay the leader of this group, what's going to happen to them all? They're all going to perish. We've got to get the real thing here. I'm not getting the job done. We need a new coach. Nobody's hitting the ball out of the infield. We're not even hitting the rim. We're throwing the ball over the backstop. We're not even getting the ball down the floor. We're kicking it out of bounds. We're not even playing. We're not even on the on the court. We're all at the water fountain. I got to get out of here. That was a water fountain was kind of a a joke. Never mind. And what what then is not to be believed? And I I think the solution to this is again Ezekiel twenty eight sixteen and Matthew four for those who want the answer ahead of time. Otherwise, we'll see you next week, and let's rise and be dismissed.